souls. We look a little bit different with the setup this morning and the reason for that is that I am actually on study leave for a few days and in the past that would have required me to find somebody else to preach but through the wonder of technology I get to be with you this morning. Well we are continuing in our series called Hope Amid the Ruins and over the last few weeks we have been exploring how God led Nehemiah on this project of restoring the walls of Jerusalem. And after some more opposition by officials from the nations outside, we get this little time marking note in chapter 6. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. But then something subtle happens. Once the wall is built, once this thing that had been such a galvanizing force in uniting the people together is finally accomplished, well, there's this sense of emptiness on the other side. And I don't know if you've ever experienced maybe this season of intense togetherness. Maybe it was like an ad hoc project at work that brought you into a series of overnighters, you know, where like the pizza boxes are flying around and the boardroom turns into a strategy room. Or you've been on a mission trip that drew you into close proximity with others where the working together changed you. And then you get that sense of loss on the other side when the intensity that made you feel so alive is over and you go back to ordinary. Well, Nehemiah gives us a snapshot in chapter 7 of what this looked like for Israel. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. And so we come this morning to Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. The wall has been renovated, and now it is time to renovate the heart of the people and reawaken their memory. So let us hear the word of the Lord together. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon in the presence of the men and the women and others who could understand in the water gate. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people standing could, all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, 
And all the people lifted up their hands and said, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Shabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbethai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing all the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord will be your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day, do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, we ask that your spirit would come upon us, that you would make known the words of your scriptures to us. And so that hearing we may follow you with joy and remember that your joy is our strength. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we are going to start out this morning with a little congregational participation. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about what were a couple of the most significant historical events that took place in your lifetime. You know, kind of big, like, world, you know, defining events. And you can tell the person next to you, you can write it down, or you can even put it in the chat box. I'm going to throw a little timer up, add a little background video of some candles, a little soft reflection music. No, no, that sounds like a spa commercial. Let's try this one. Yeah, that's good. All right, ready, set, go.
and we're back. All right, now you've got an icebreaker question for your community groups as you meet together this week. Well, for me, one of those events took place on November 9th, 1989. It was the day that the wall came tumbling down. And the reason that it stands out for me is, as I mentioned it before, we had an exchange student from Berlin who was living with us this year. And I remember my mother shouting out down the hall to tell Carola to come into the living room so she could see what was going on. And I remember as clear as day, Carola replying, yeah, right. I mean, the wall is never coming down. But then she came into the living room and she saw it and the tears that came streaming down her face. She got on the phone and called her mother and I remember the tears that came streaming down my father's face as he realized he was going to have to pay for this phone call. Well, and I imagine that everyone over 16 years of age remembers exactly where you were when you first saw images of American Airlines Flight 11 colliding with the World Trade Center's North Tower. It happened at 8.46 in the morning, and like a lot of people out on the West Coast, I had gotten up, showered, uh, grabbed a cup of coffee, and headed into work completely oblivious to what happened 3,000 miles away. And I couldn't help but think when I saw it, you know, that earlier that year, I had visited a friend in New York City and from her apartment in Greenwich Village could see those massive buildings cut into the sky like steel sequoias in an urban forest. And the thought that the Manhattan skyline had been changed forever, it, it just didn't seem real. When I arrived in my classroom that morning, ready to teach my first period AP Lit class, all of my students were gathered around the television in the common room, and I mean, it did not make sense to talk about Greek tragedy that morning. We were living through our own tragedy. We all remember how we felt that morning. It was one of those days that marks time uh, maybe the first time since Pearl Harbor where we felt vulnerable as a nation. And then, of course, there were so many world-shaking events that took place this year. And all of those things, they have a way of getting locked inside our memory. Ordinary details of life somehow get written down more permanently on days when a lot is happening. And memory, it, it has this way of kind of bringing us back to the important things. I mean, there are some things that we never want to forget because they had a role in shaping who we are and what we value. I mean, after all, we celebrate anniversaries because they remind us that it isn't the daily life of hurts and chores that shape a marriage. No, it's, it's the promises that we make to each other. And there's a reason that we gather each week to remember who God is, to remember the cross and the empty tomb, to remember God's, God's great grace to us, and remember that God is still at work through his people, revealing his kingdom and making earth look more like heaven. Well, we went on that little trip down memory lane because I think it helps us get inside the head of uh, Nehemiah and his world a little bit. If there was one day that would have stood out above all others in the minds of ancient citizens of Jerusalem, it would have been sometime in the year 587 BC. That was the year that the Babylonians broke through the city walls and carried them away into captivity, laying waste to the temple. 
And you got to know that seeing the temple destroyed, it would have utterly crushed the soul of the people. I mean, it was like their 9-11, except they believed that God resided in the temple. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this, all that was visible and institutional, all that seemed theologically guaranteed by God's faithfulness, all that gave symbolic certitude and coherence, all that was linked to significance, identity, and security was gone, crumbled and burned in the fire. Centuries earlier, God had given his people land, security, abundance, and the memory of those gifts and the promise of the God who gave them Well, those were the glue that bonded Israel together. But the years passed, and while Israel began to flourish during those feast years, the memory of those leaner times started to fade away, and they began to believe that all that they had was the result of their hard work. Prosperity causes amnesia, Brueggemann notes. And people with amnesia forget who they are. And if we forget who we are, we forget what we're supposed to do. And if we forget who we are and what we're supposed to do, we naturally begin to wonder, where do we find meaning? The philosopher Alistair McIntyre describes this really vividly when he writes, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part deprive children of stories, and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. Forgetting their story goes a long way toward explaining how the people of Israel forgot who they were when they were carted off to Babylon to face 70 years of exile. Well, by chapter 8, they have rebuilt the wall and they have brought the temple back, and so there are some great things going on, but they're still in exile. They're still ruled by another nation, and they're deeply troubled. I mean, they're asking the big questions. Where is God? What is the story that we're in? What are we supposed to do? And that's where we pick up in Nehemiah in chapter 8, verse 1. At the start of it, it says, All the people came together as one on the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the scroll containing the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. I mean, it's a pretty unusual scene. There is this religious gathering, and all the people are gathered together. They they come with this deep longing and this deep brokenness. Enough brokenness to set aside their old dreams. Enough longing to believe that they can dream a new dream. And I think that hope is often born at the place where brokenness and longing meet. God shows up in that place. God will use people in that place. So there's this gathering. And the strange thing is, it's not the religious leaders who initiate it. In verse 2, we read that someone tells Ezra, the priest, to go and get the scroll and start reading it. And I imagine Ezra's like, well, okay, but where do I start? And the people were just like, I I don't know, just start reading it. How about in the beginning? We've got to know if our lives mean anything. We've got to know what to do. And we can't know what to do if we don't know what story we are a part of. And so the scene continues. 
Ezra read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. I mean, Ezra starts to read, and all the people, they're, they're hearing the stories of creation, of the flood, of God's covenant with Abraham, of his faithfulness to Joseph, and the redemption story of the Exodus. And the, the people are hearing this, get this, for six hours. He is reading scripture to them, and they're standing there with rapt attention for six hours. They are in church for six hours listening to a sermon. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I mean, you guys want to keep going? I, I could do this all day. You want to watch the Super Bowl? Fair enough. But they're there, and they're gathered, and I mean, the obvious question is, what's going on? How could they just stay there and stand? Ezra brings out the scroll, and he, he praises the law. He praises the God who gave the law. And the people bless him, and they bless the law, and they bless his reading of the law. And then the story goes on to say that the people fell down on their faces, and they wept. So, they're all day in this worship service. And Ezra starts distributing priests all around the people so that they can understand what it is that they're hearing. They're in the town square. They're, they're standing up. They're praising God. And, and, and they're weeping. And they're, they're listening to Ezra read. And I mean, what's going on here, right? I mean, I think it's really hard for us in this kind of fast-paced technological age to picture doing anything for six hours straight. I mean, we can't even watch Netflix without getting on our phones, right? Well, imagine that your ancestors had been taken from their home and, and everything that once held meaning. And you were finally allowed to go back to the land of your people, only you didn't really know what to do once you got there because nothing looked familiar and any memories that you might have had were passed down from stories and they were kind of jumbled and kind of fuzzy. And all the building is done and the place looks great and, but you kind of are there and you kind of have forgotten why that was important. And so you're thinking, well, now what? I mean, it's not like you had the same distractions. They didn't have TV or the internet, no, no Instagram, no Candy Crush, no Snapchat, no TikTok, no Netflix, no memes, no videos of cats jumping awkwardly on YouTube. I'm sure he's fine. No text, no Twitter, no Zoom, no Facebook, no book. I mean, no books. Just a, a few dusty scrolls that your grandfather vaguely remembers. I mean, imagine a bookless existence. Well, imagine you're hearing a story read to you, maybe for the first time. And you've come with all kinds of questions. I mean, is there any point to this existence? Are we here just functioning, not really living these lives that are nasty, brutish, and short, where another nation is just going to come through here, destroy all that we have rebuilt, and move us off again? 
It is the best that we can hope for, just eking out an existence, racking up as much pleasure as we can, avoiding as much pain as possible. Is that all there is? You have all these questions. And then you hear a story. And it's not just any story. It's the story that makes sense of your life. You hear the story about a God who created and ordered the world and how sin entered and holds you and everyone around you captive and brings ruin and gets into our hearts and into our institutions. And it it explains why there is so much brokenness and oppression and pain and injustice and disease. And they hear the story of Abraham about how through him God brings hope. He blesses Abraham so that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. And you think, wow, that's, that's why I'm here. That's who we are. We are here to be a blessing to all people. That is my purpose. That is my calling. And then you hear about how your people were in captivity once before. And this God who created you and made a covenant with you goes to great lengths not to give up on you and frees you from oppression and takes you through the wilderness into this land that you're in and provides you with everything that you need to live justly and deeply and well. And you start to fall in love with this story because it rings true. And you start to see yourself in the plot. But then you begin to hold up that story that you're hearing and you put it up against the plot of the story that you've been living. This, this, this life that has forgotten all about God and this life that is anxious and, and afraid and self-centered which, which holds on with a tight fist to any blessing that comes your way and it hits you. I haven't been living, I've only been surviving. Life is meant to be free and good and full of abundance for everyone, but instead I've just been looking out for myself. I've forgotten all about this God who made the world good and I have put myself at the center of my own story. But when you hear a story like that, what else would you be doing but standing there for six hours, letting it wash over you? It's the only story that matters. And in the middle of it, their memory of who they are and who they belong to, it just, it comes flooding back. I mean, maybe this scene is not so strange after all. And their leaders tell them in verse 10, okay, You can stop crying now because this is good news. God has done it before. He can do it again. Go out and have a feast and share with everyone, rich and poor, because this God who claims us, he wants all people to experience his abundance, his goodness. We have rebuilt the walls and we have renovated the temple and now live in the grace that God is going to renovate you. And yeah, we are going to continue to gather together to tell this story. Because if we are going to live into this future that God has for us, we have to believe that our hearts can be renovated as well. This God, 
He takes up residence at the place where their brokenness and their longing meet. He resurrects their memories. He resurrects the people and hope is born. And I wonder all souls, have you ever been in a place where brokenness and longing meet? I was looking through my journals this past week. It's a little practice of mine. It's sometimes just good to look back on where God has carried you. And this week, five years ago, I was actually part of a small mission team for my church that traveled to a little village in rural El Salvador to work with a group called Enlace. Incidentally, one of our elders from All Souls was there a year ago, also with Enlace, and got one of the last flights out of El Salvador before COVID hit. Enlace is the Spanish word for link, like a, a chain leak fence. And it's a reminder that the roots of poverty aren't just due to a breakdown in economics, but a breakdown in community, a breakdown in relationships. And so what Enlace does is they help pastors like Marvin, who's in the picture on the left here, cultivate a redemptive passion for their communities so that they can lead their churches to have that same passion and help them reach out to those within and beyond the walls of the church to meet human needs. And it plays out in a number of economic and educational initiatives. Well, in Caluco, where our team was sent, respiratory illness is a huge factor reducing the quality of the lives of the people. I mean, most meals are cooked on a traditional wood-burning stove. As you can see, all the smoke is everywhere in the house. And so Enlace helps the community find out what are the issues that they want to solve and then they come alongside pastors like Marvin to help them organize his people to reach into the community to find uh, financial resources, to provide labor, to create eco-stoves that will funnel smoke out of the homes. It's about neighbors helping each other and people who are often in great need themselves set aside their own interests to invest in others. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Nehemiah's wall. And, and the joy does not come in this kind of grudging anticipation that if I just do this work here, then eventually I'm going to get my own stove and I can forget about those folks. No, it actually comes when people get to use their gifts and their abilities to bless others. Our small team came alongside, not so much to help with the project, although we did get our hands dirty, but more than anything, we were there to offer encouragement and support and to witness for ourselves what happens when people are empowered to partner with God to become hopeful rebuilders and find the joy of giving to others. I was coming off at the time a really hard year in ministry. And for me, it was a place to find hope in the middle of my own brokenness and longing. Every week in a little tin-roofed church, Marvin would remind his people when they gather for worship that the joy of the Lord is their strength. And that joy isn't found by retreating from the world into a spiritual community, but by digging in and seeing God renew the community around you. To see that the, the hopefulness and the joy at what God is doing in the place where their longing for God helped repair the brokenness all around them. 
It's such a blessing for me to be able to look back over those entries um, those years ago. It reminded me of a time when I caught a glimpse of something true and good and beautiful. It told me the story of who we are as God's people. We gather each week to be reminded of who we are, that we are blessed with all of the riches of God's grace in Jesus to be a blessing to others. We tell the story in here so that we can live the story out there. And it is so easy to forget. But in the telling and in the living, we start to remember. And we start to hear the subtle tones of a story that says that the brokenness and the pain of now is not how it is supposed to be. And this pain breaks God's heart, but friends, it will not always be so. But in order to be the kind of people who can help others hear that story, we have got to get the story in us. We've got to hear the story in our worship and in our liturgy and dig into the story with our community groups and learn how to see the signs of the kingdom out in the world. Friends, God is committed to his renovation in us so that we can take part in his renewing of others. The story that the people of Israel heard, it reminded them that they were a nation of priests, the light of the world. And that the joy of the Lord will always be their strength. That's what the work of renovation does. It joins us to the work that God is doing to make all things new. And part of the way that we tell that story is by coming to the table each week where in this bread and in this cup, we tell the story of our sin and God's steadfast love. We tell the story of our bondage and how we have found freedom in him, where because of his son, our brokenness and longing are transformed into hope. And so friends, as we come to the table this morning, let us pray. Father, we are a community of people who believes that in Jesus you have spoken the last word about everything. And so we ask that you would write that word on our hearts, that you would allow it to penetrate into our marrow and get into our bones. Father, you've given us a story to tell, and we know that the plot is a lot easier to find when it comes from the heart. And when the heart looks like the story that it's telling. So as we come to this table to remember and to celebrate your great love, we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together and he took the bread. And having given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out saying, this is the cup in my blood 
The cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming his dying until he comes again. And so, friends, as we come to the table, as we celebrate communion together, even though we are apart, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, eat and drink, remember and rejoice. Amen.